It's Muppeturgy with a very special episode about the Muppet Shots episode of The Muppet Show. Yay! We might cut the A. Welcome back, everyone. It is the season finale of season one of The Muppet Show, which means it is the season finale of season one of Muppeturgy. I'm David Levy. Excited to be here with Christy Bauer, Michal Richardson, Adam Grossworth. Uh, hey, we're super punchy already, and also, uh, we're a week late, and we're sorry, but also... Two weeks, I think, by the time they get this. Perhaps two weeks late by the time you hear this. We're, uh, sincerely, extremely grateful to those of you who, uh, noticed (laughs) that we were late and reached out on social media. No, we were not attacked by Swiss Mimes. We are fine. We just had some scheduling issues. There are four of us, and we all really wanted to be here for our season finale, and so we... We're trying to make it work. Uh, peek behind the curtain. We actually still are not all actually here at the same time for our season finale. We are recording this episode in two pieces and editing it together. And hopefully you won't actually notice. But uh, we thought we should tell you just in case you can notice because we believe in transparency here at Muppeturgy. But we're super excited that we have made it to the end of the season and that you uh, have been listening and sticking with us this whole time. Speaking of our amazing listeners, uh, we were recently talking about uh, our wonderfully pedantic listeners. And so uh, I think we had just had that conversation when I saw first thing in the morning that we had an email from past and future guest of the show, Anthony Strand, with the subject line, a note about Jerry Nelson's falsetto. And so I expected to learn that Jerry Nelson had had like a tragic throat condition or something and that I was about to feel very bad. But this is what that email said. When my now wife Roz and I first started dating, we bonded over Muppet stuff, of course. Early on, I burned her a CD of Muppet love songs. Most of those songs are pretty short, so it had something like 38 tracks. She loved it, except for one thing. With Every Beat of My Heart by Little Jerry and the Monotones from Sesame Street. I was baffled by this because it's very similar to Gonna Always Love You from Muppets Take Manhattan, a song that Roz loves a lot. I asked her what the difference was, and the answer was, of course, Jerry Nelson's falsetto. She can't stand it. This was bananas to me because it just sounds like Muppets to me. It's one of the things Muppet voices sound like. Anyway, flash forward 12 years and she was delighted to hear how much you all hate it too. So thank you both for listening, Anthony and Roz, but especially Roz, we are bonded in hate and (laughs) we are delighted. So thank you so much. Adam, where are we now in the season? We are now at, hey, season one, episode 24, the finale of season one of The Muppet Show. This episode was taped November 24th to 26th, 1976, and it aired in New York on March 21st, 1977, it, making it the third to last episode to air in New York. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do, so it really makes me happy to introduce to you. Mummenschanz is a Swiss performing company specializing in a style of mime featuring masks and props. Established in 1972 by Andres Bossard and Bernie Schurch, both Swiss, and Floriana Frasetto, an Italian-American, they presented their first show at the Festival of Avignon. Over the next few years, they gained popularity touring the world, and the troupe eventually grew to include additional members, including Brian Meal, who started as Andres' translator and eventually became a Muppet performer, most notably as Barkley on Sesame Street. Hmm. Puppetry world must be pretty small. Yeah. Mummenschanz relocated to the U.S. in 1977 and played a three-year stint on Broadway, which began one week after this episode aired in New York. I 
have always believed that the first Broadway show I ever saw was Peter Pan starring Sandy Duncan, as previously discussed, I believe, multiple times on this podcast. But now I think it may have been this. And my entire conception of myself is a little bit shattered. Well, this show did run for three years, so it's possible you saw it after Peter Pan, right? The following year, they contributed several sketches to Sesame Street. They returned to Broadway in 1986 with the new show, which ran for five months at the Helen Hayes. In the 80s, they popped up on TV in America quite a bit on talk shows or occasionally as sort of a stunt guest star sort of thing in a weird episode of a sitcom here and there. In 1988, the troupe established a foundation that allowed it to tap several sources for aid or sponsorship and also to start puppetry classes and workshops for young people. Andres Brossard died of AIDS-related illness in 1992, but the troupe is still around. In December 2016, they began touring Switzerland with a new program titled You and Me, which was created by founding member Floriana Frasetto, who is actually still with the troupe to this day. She's the only founder who's still uh, participating. She's 70 years old now. There have been two documentary films about the troupe in this century, one in 2003 called The Story of Momenshans, and one in 2018 called Momenshans Movie. And they are currently rehearsing for their 50th anniversary tour, which will premiere in Zurich on December 10th. After that, Momenshans will play around 100 shows in 27 locations across Switzerland by the end of June 2022. So make your travel plans now. You can get information and tickets at Momenshans.com. That's all I have to say about Momenshans. Uh, anyone have anything else to say? I mean, David, were they a part of your childhood at all? I, I, I single you out because we're around the same age and Michal and Christie are a little bit younger. I mean, I'm, I'm aware of them. And like, if you had said Mom and Shans to me before I rewatched this episode, I would sort of have a vision of the kind of stuff they did, but I can't name a specific memory of them. And I feel like I'm more likely to have seen them on Sesame Street than anywhere else. I have very like strong childhood memories of them, and it, it's probably largely from this and Sesame Street, but I'm pretty sure I saw them live. I keep um, – this is going to seem like a really weird non-sequitur, but on the on, on the Peacock show Girls 5 Eva, which is quite good, um, <laughs> there's this <laughs> song called New York Lonely Boy. New York Lonely Boy Pants are always spiffy, only sibling is the city. This playground is the lobby, has a palette for wasabi. The strand is his Disneyland. He's just another New York lonely boy. The 70s pop culture references in that, like one of them would be Moment Chance if 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 this were the New York lonely boy of the seventies and not the present. And, and it's been stuck in my head ever since I watched this episode. It just feels like a very upper West side childhood thing. Um, and it's possible that, that I, I just saw them once and then watched them up at show a lot. And it wasn't really that big a deal, but it's, it's kind of become that in my head. Um, and it's also, I think like the thing of the seventies and eighties and like only having four channels and one of them was PBS and that was what you were allowed to watch because it was educational or artistic and like they were definitely on PBS. And so I think, um, you know, that was a thing like you maybe caught mum and shots because it was the thing you were allowed to watch and okay, <laughs> sure. So yeah, like they were just around. Um, and I think like my parents were really into them and I like, it was definitely a thing. So, um, well, 
why don't we get things started? Why don't you get me started? And I'll just keep talking. I love this episode, and I think it's partly because of this weird nostalgia that I have for Mum and Chance. And I sense from our off my conversations that I am alone. David, what are your thoughts on this episode? I like this episode a lot, but it felt to me almost like the sort of TV specials that the Muppets did a lot in the 70s before the Muppet show, where they were only in part of the show because they're not, with the exception of the talk spot, they're not in any of the Mummin Shans segments. Uh, and that's weird. And it's not bad because the Mummin Shans segments, for the most part, I thought were pretty entertaining. Uh, but it just, it didn't feel quite as Muppety a Muppet show as other episodes do. Christy. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I think that uh, the most succinct way to describe my feelings about this episode is I feel about Moomin Chance the way Adam feels about Jug Bands. Wow. Yes. The, I mean, I, I can very coolly and intellectually appreciate the artistry of whatever the fuck they're doing, but it is not for me. <laughs> um, but that said... I uh, think the backstage plot is bonkers and a lot of fun. And uh, I'm a huge fan of one of the numbers in particular. So, you know, a mixed bag. Uh, The Mum and Chance stuff isn't bad. It's just kind of boring. So, meh. Okay. I feel you're being kind to me and my feelings about jug bands in that assessment. So I'll, I'll, I'll take it. And so will mom and chance. Michal. Yeah. I'm going to agree with David that there was a lot to like about mom and chance. I, there's, there's something about them in conjunction with the Muppets that feels like it should work together. And it doesn't, or at least not the way they put it together for most of this episode with the exception of the talk spot. They're kind of just off doing their own thing, like you said, as though the Muppets were featured on somebody else's show or as though the Moment Chance is featured but not interacting with Muppets at all. And if I saw them on a on a dance program in a black box theater, I would talk the ears of everybody I know off about what a cool act it was and it was so inventive and it used props and different materials in all these ways. And then seeing it on the Muppet show or watching clips of them on a seventies variety show, it's something doesn't fit it. And it, it feels like there's no spot for them on the show or like they're all of their sketches were interesting and I was interested and then, but I was here to see a Muppet show episode and this was something else. But yeah, when they talk to Kermit, it's funny. He makes a good straight man to them. They can't, serve the same functions that a good guest star in the Muppet show serves where there is interaction and the person gives them up at encouragement or is the straight man to their jokes or is tied into the plot in some way. They're just kind of there. You know, I think we're also all avoiding the elephant in the room about this episode, which is how deeply uncomfortable we are with Gonzo being horny for piggy. And I know we'll talk I, about that later, but oh, I feel we, like we, we need will. to name that now. <laughs> Uh, yep. Yep. Okay. Those Speak those two things. Moment Shans <laughs> crossed with Gonzo. It, yeah. Okay, we'll talk about yeah. it later. Okay. Yeah, I I I don't mind it. Um uh <laughs> Yeah, no, but I agree with everything about Moment Shans. I mean, I think 
it would have required them to do to them being mum and chance to do more work because they would have had to come up with new bits. Like there's no way to insert the Muppets into what they did here because they're just doing the things that they that they normally do. But yeah, they could surely somebody could have come up with new things for Mum and Chance to do with the Muppets and no one did that, which is too bad. So it, it does actually contradict like everything I have said on 23 episodes of this podcast so far about <laughs> how I want the guests and the Muppets to interact. But uh, it worked for me because I like Mum and Chance, I suppose. Um, so, oh, well. Adam, you were saying that there could have been more material written for the Muppets to do together with Mum and Chance, but it's possible that there just wasn't time for that because they were actually a substitution. I don't know how last minute it was or how much time they had, but originally the guest star intended for this episode was Gina Lolo Brigida. Lolo Brigida. She was on the love boat. She was on Falcon Crest. Like this is why, right? She's, she's one of those like seventies, eighties. I think she's, Oh, she started in Buena Sarah, Mrs. Campbell, which is the film that Mamma Mia rips off. Oh, how funny. I think she's a reference. I think she's a, She's a punchline in the 70s and 80s as just like, you know, a pretty woman. It was a funny last name. It's fun to say. Exactly. Right. Like as a, you know, oh, she was Esmeralda in a, in a hunchback adaptation. Right. But like, you know, Edith, you know, Gina Little, little Brigida. I mean, I'm sure that wasn't a real thing, but you know what I mean? Like, I, a, I mean, I don't know. It could have Right. <laughs> Music time. I'm uh, excited that there is quite a bit of music to talk about, given the uh, overall lack of noise making by the guest stars. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, The first number it is utterly delightful. I I love it so much. Mr. Baseman, I'm asking just one thing. Will you please teach me? Yeah, the way you sing, cause Mr. Baseman, I want to be a baseman. Like this. Now you. With me. So yes, that is the delightful odd couple of uh, Scooter and Floyd. (laughs) And uh, truly shocking that someone with such a mellifluous falsetto as Jerry Nelson would have such a rich bass range. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so uh, Mr. Bassman was the signature song of a a Scottish star named Johnny Symbol. Shockingly, not his real name. Uh, real name. But? Uh, John Hendry Blair. And I should say symbol like drums symbol, not like symbol like Prince symbol. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and uh, it's from 1963. And the, the bassman part uh, was a singer named Ronnie Bright, who uh, was a doo-wop star uh he sang alternately with uh the cadillacs the valentines and then for 40 years with the coasters and uh yeah i i don't have any thoughts about it other than that it is utterly delightful it makes me laugh every single time having experienced this song primarily through muppet albums and only ever hearing the audio this experience has definitely improved now knowing that the singers are floyd and scooter because i did not know that as a kid. 
um, maybe because the Floyd voice is deeper and it doesn't quite sound like Floyd would come to sound. But um, <laughs> now that my head canon since uh, Christie's episode of Moving Right Along has Scooter wanting everybody's jobs, that's also a big improvement. This is a whole song about Scooter just wanting to usurp Floyd and become the bass man. Um, however, I will note that this experience is diminished without that yeah that Scooter screams at the end of on the album. Can we hear that? Why did that make faster. the album and not what happened? The whole thing is much faster. I think cocaine is involved in that entire recording. Well, there you have it. You say that he wants to be Floyd. I get the vibe that he wants to have to, Floyd. To be with Floyd? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you have a whole lot of Scooter headcanon going on, David. Yeah, but this whole, just the body language, he's like staring at Floyd and inching closer to him. Be like, hey, hey, mister, I, I want to know more about how you do that thing. And maybe I'm reading a little bit into this because this is definitely when I was a freshman in high school, how I bagged the senior trumpet player from my marching band. <laughs> but hey, you dirty old man. By learning to be Mr. Trumpet man. You- yeah, basically. Oh gosh. <laughs> I thought that David and I were going to have the same experience with this, but uh, no, I did. Al- I did also have the experience that you had. Yeah. Just, we both have diverging Head cannons about Scooter. Right. Although it's funny, I always knew it was Scooter singing because to me, Scooter's voice yeah. is very, very I'm recognizable. Yeah. But I never knew who the bassman was because it does not sound anything like Floyd. Janice is in the background, just super not into any of this. Like she does not care <laughs> at all that any of the, any of this is happening. And it's just it's weird to say that a Muppet has a blank expression, <laughs> but she does. I thought that maybe she was pissed because maybe she's doing Floyd and didn't like Scooter kind of edging in on her man. <laughs> it's possible. I didn't read it as pissed. I just read it as like as as, as unenthused. But I, I can I can go with your reading. So in the backstage plot, uh, we have a couple of throwaway references to songs. At one point, Piggy sings a short bit of "Can't Help Loving That Man." Uh, which is from Showboat, a musical from 1927 with music by Jerome Kern and uh, lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein. And then Gonzo sings a little bit of a song called She Touched Me from a fairly obscure Broadway show called Drat the Cat that had music by Milton Schaefer and lyrics by Ira Levin. And uh, a certain segment of the audience is probably thinking, Ira Levin, like the guy who wrote Rosemary's Baby? Yes, that Ira Levin. Huh. Uh, and I, I just find it delightful that uh, of the lyrics to spring to Gonzo's mind, it would be ones written by the guy who wrote Rosemary's Baby. <laughs> well, so, you know, this song, Dread the Cat only played eight performances on Broadway, uh, but this song had a little bit of a life because the male lead of Dread the Cat was Elliot Gould, who at the time was married to Barbara Streisand. So Barbara Streisand cut a single with this song is the A-side and another song from the score is the B-side. And that single did pretty well. So even though barely anyone remembers Drat the Cat, uh, He Touched Me, which is the version that she recorded, although it is She Touched Me in the show, is a song that is known and loved by many a Streisand fan. All right. Let's, let's, let's talk Waltz. So as much as I love 
Mr. Baseman, I hate this next thing. It's funny that you mentioned my feelings about jug bands, because I take it all back. I will take an all jug band episode if it if it means that this gets erased from history. Yeah. Oh, uh, I this was I mean this was not my favorite, but I didn't think it was that bad. Well, you must not have even a trace of misophonia, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that is. <laughs> yep. Yep, I I definitely have it and it, it's terrible. Um Oh, is that like when when chewing bothers you? Uh, yeah, it, so- it sounds in general, but yeah, when you're when you're triggered by particular sounds. Uh-huh. Um Uh-huh. And this is a, a veritable orchestra of trigger sounds. Yeah. So it, it's a library and a, a various Muppets come into the library making various noises. Um, and, and, you know, I want to be clear that's annoying, but like also in a, in a, a space where other humans or Muppets exist, you can't expect complete silence. And then um, the librarian Muppet decides to you know make, make this into a good thing and, and conducts them. So, you know, it, if, if you have, <laughs> Problems with this. Um, skip ahead about thirty seconds. It is much worse without visuals. Ugh. Yeah, and, and it's a million times worse without visuals. I mean, Nigel with the chewing and Piggy coughing with your mouth open. Stop it. Nightmares. Nightmares. I through the whole clip I was making like the Kermit like smushy face. Like <laughs> every part of me was clenched. It was horrible. Um yeah, so the the song that it apparently uh it makes uh or at least inspires uh the librarian to conduct ugh, uh, is the Blue Danube Waltz, which is uh, a waltz by uh, Johann Strauss from 1866. It came into popularity the next year at the 1867 World's Fair in Paris, which is not to be confused with the 1887 World's Fair in Paris, which is where the Eiffel Tower debuted. And that seems like a weird uh, trivia question. Like which one is older, the Blue Danube Waltz or uh, the Eiffel Tower, and as it turns out, the Blue Danube Waltz by 10 years. And uh, one of the uh, sources that I, I read about it uh, pointed out that it is not, in fact, one waltz, but uh, five waltzes strung together, which seems like really good value. <laughs> in defense of this sketch, uh, first of all, it's very cute. They're in a library, and Fozzie is reading a book that says Better Jokes for Bears, and that little visual. Uh, was almost enough for me, although the sketch did go on much longer than it needed to. And the librarian is Zelda Rose, who we've seen before in the show. Uh, most memorably at this point, I think she was the school teacher in the Inchworm sketch with on the Charles Aznavour episode, but she will reappear at, whenever they need sort of a, a school marm type figure. She's the Muppet that they call on for that. Near the end of this, Wayne and Wanda waltz past. Uh, which of course ends with a, a, a shelf load of books falling on them because even when it's not their number, that's that's what happens, has to happen to them, which I love. Um, but at at one point, uh, you can see the entire head of a puppeteer um, under Wanda's skirt, which is just you know kind of fun. 
<laughs> a little creepy. I mean, a little creepy and like, you know, a little weird that this was not live, but you know, I guess no one caught it and that's what the take they had to work with. And uh, I made a gif of it. You can see it in the show notes. You don't have to watch the sketch with sound to go back and catch that for yourself. So we have an underwater show tune in this week's UK spot. When I'm not near the fish, I love, I love the fish I'm near. Every fin that flutters by me is a flame that must be fanned. When I can't fondle the fin that I'm fond of, I fondle the fin at hand. So I'm pleased to report that this is not the work of some strange underwater fetishist, uh, but in fact, uh, a show tune from the 1940s. It's a song called When I'm Not Near the Girl I Love from Finian's Rainbow which had music by Burton Lane and lyrics by Yip Harburg and a shout out to Yip Harburg. He has two songs in this episode. Uh, We will uh, get to the second shortly. And yeah, uh, unclear who did the uh, fishy lyric update to this. Yeah. They're not great. The, the fish lyrics. Nope. They're not, they're not terrible, but they, they, they sort of run roughshod over the rhyme scheme and, and, they lose a couple of like clever internal rhymes and don't replace them with anything that works. It's, I don't know. I, I find it delight. I mean, you're, you're right, but I find it delightful. I also, the gill I love is right there. <laughs> <laughs> what I did love about this is, so what we're seeing is Jim Henson puppeteering, like an eel that is floating. And even though presumably it's not actually underwater, like the puppet itself, the way that it's, like it has sort of like fur along its ridge and it, it moves as though it's underwater. It's very impressive. And it's done superimposed over film footage of real fish. And he seems to be actually singing to the fish around him. And I don't know if that's just luck and coincidence or if this is just like really exceptional monitor work, but I, I was so impressed with it. Yeah, the, they'll definitely return to the underwater setting for future numbers, and it, it's always a delight. I enjoyed this, but I'm a sucker for a stupid pun. Uh, we should also note that this is one of two songs uh, for, from this episode that I've uh, found that noted Joe Raposo Stan Frank Sinatra has recorded. <laughs> he has not recorded Mr. Baseman. I was going to say. <laughs> Sadly. <laughs> The second song that uh, Sinatra recorded is also the second Jeff Harburg song, which is our Wayne and Wanda song. Say it's only a paper moon hanging over a <laughs> Yep. <laughs> so what happens when your janitor does all the rigging? <laughs> It sounded like it hurt more than what I would imagine an actual paper moon would. Well, it's also sort of a great bit because the paper, like the moon that's hanging falls and then very clearly a much larger moon is the one that has landed on Wayne when he, when he gets up from, from down below. It's just a cute little like forced perspective trick 
it's I don't know. I, I I like a good prop gag like that. I'm gonna miss Wayne and Wanda in season two. So this is their last appearance, isn't it? Until season four. So uh, yeah, quickly the the song as, as mentioned is uh, lyrics by Yip Harburg, music by Harold Arlen. I see and Billy Rose. Did Billy Rose contribute lyrics? Billy Rose contributed producing and therefore got himself a authorship credit, as was his habit to squeeze more money out of his writers. Gotcha. Yeah, that's definitely not a thing that happens today. No. The Beyonce of his day. I was going to say, but you beat me to it. <laughs> the old I was in the room trick. Yeah, so this was written for a Broadway flop called The Great Magoo, and then later used in a 1933 movie called Take a Chance. Uh, the first hit version was Paul, by Paul Whiteman, and Cliff Edwards, uh, a.k.a. Ukulele Ike, the voice of Jiminy Cricket, also had an early hit with it. I mean, it's a standard. There's like, I don't know how much we need to say about it. Yeah, no, th- there are many, many versions of it that are great. I particularly am a fan of the Nat King Cole version. We should talk briefly about uh, Sam's even weirder than usual introduction of yes. Wanda. Yes, please. It is my distinct pleasure at this time to present Wayne and Wanda, of whom noted composer and conductor Leonard Bernstein wrote. <laughs> These two are a manifestation of the musical mediocrity that passes for talent in our troubled times. <laughs> I love that Sam uh, mispronounces Bernstein. I love it. It's such a good character note for him. Sam in general reminds me of a really terrible voice teacher that I had in college who was very, he he was a very pompous opera man who spent 15 years as a lyric baritone in Austria and like made a point of like shitting on musical theater at any given opportunity. And at one point he, he, uh, made us watch a video of Renee Fleming and Bryn Terfel singing wheels of a dream from ragtime. And he gave this speech <laughs> about how, now I don't know who the composer is of this particular piece, but I am certain that he would agree with me that this is the optimal presentation of this piece. And I cried until I wept. Um, so did someone correct him? Or oh, no, absolutely. Him? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> No, he was a monster. He 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 deserved to look like a fool. And he did. <laughs> I will admit I did Google just to see if by chance Leonard Bernstein had actually written about the Muppet show because I, I would buy it, but he did not. This is an invention of the writers. I have a feeling he would have enjoyed it. I mean, I'm sure he enjoyed the royalties he made off of the four different Bernstein songs that had been featured on the Muppet show over the years. This is true. Ready! It is time for Shot Out of a Cannon. Our opening gags are either recycled or unremarkable. Wait, are we going to talk about Fozzie's totally impenetrable joke? I mean, it's not impenetrable. So yes, let's talk about it so I can explain it to you. Oh, okay. We don't have have a clip though, so. Well, I said, right. I didn't ask for one. I, I skipped over it because it wasn't funny. But his joke is, hey. 30 days has September, April, June, and my cousin Fred, who will be out on Wednesday. And I didn't get it until like the third time I watched this episode. His cousin Fred he's is in, in jail. He's in prison. It's his, he has 30 days left on his sentence. Oh, I was like, does he have 30 days of vacation time to use? And like, <laughs> no. Is there a day named Fred? Somebody no. He works for a union. <laughs> he just got 30 days. That's cousin Fred's deal. Got it. Yeah. Do you think that's the same cousin who was in the audience uh, a couple weeks ago? <laughs> 
<laughs> he incited a riot in the audience and got arrested for disturbing the peace. Fozzie turned him in. <laughs> well, thank you for explaining the joke to me. You're welcome. I'm, I'm going to need one. I'm going to need your help in a little bit. So, all right. You can get even. Okay. Meanwhile, backstage, uh, the, the backstage plot does feel a lot more like familiar Muppet territory than the moment Sean's. Uh, however, unfortunately, it's because we're back to Kermit is needlessly dickish to piggy bullshit. Um, and here's the uncomfortable plot twist that no one asked for. Gonzo is suddenly madly in love with Piggy in all of the worst ways. Um, He leaves her an anonymous love note that she assumes is from Kermit. She rushes into the dressing room to meet her love. It turns out to be Gonzo. Piggy's not into it. Just touch me, oh hog of my heart! Here's a touch for you, wimp buzzard! I'm ready! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It gets weirder. Kermit helps Gonzo out with this project because bros before sows, I guess. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> you know, a quiet candlelit meal with soft music, perhaps some wine, <gasps> and then go dancing and walk <gasps> by the river in the moonlight. <gasps> oh, I would love those things, my dear. Good. So would Gonzo here. And I hope the two of you have a great evening. Kissy, kissy. I'm going to cut you in half for this frog. Yeah, Kermit just shoves Gonzo bodily into Piggy. And yeah. That's the part I find really cruel because it's... I mean, Kermit's a dick. Like (laughs) That's what it boils down to. Um... And, you know, not not very nice to Piggy. It, it's uh, cruel to Gonzo more than anything, I think, right? Because he like he knows that there's no way Piggy's going to go for that. I mean, it's... I assume it's, Gonzo asked for this. This is him well, being a wingman. I guess so, but he's being a bad wingman. And, like, it's, it's obviously misogynistic to be like, here, Piggy, here's Gonzo. Like, just do the thing. Like... Because right. Oh, I heard no you'd agency. like to go out. It, I, but right. Uh, but it's also like cruel to Gonzo because obviously Picky's going to say no to this because she does have agency. So like he's setting Gonzo up for for cruel to literally get punched in the face by I mean, Piggy. And Gonzo's being, into that though. Oh, I guess so. And but he's also being inappropriate to Piggy. So like like this is the the scene where I think he's actually the meanest, not the one coming up, which is also not great. <laughs> Yeah, okay, so in the inevitable conclusion, there is a well-deserved double karate chop. Kermit, hmm? now that you've begged for my forgiveness, don't touch me, Prince! <laughs> Why don't we just kissy-poo and make up my darling? You're breathing on me! Uh, well, well, Piggy, while I appreciate this offer of affection, mm-hmm. I hope you understand when I tell you, as usual, that I do not want you. Oh, then can I have her? <laughs> that is known as getting two turkeys with one chuck. Oh, yeah, Piggy in insult mode is the best. This might be my favorite Miss Piggy performance. It's so good. It redeems the whole thing for me. I mean, she gets a lot to do and in different ways than she usually gets to show up, but it's all at her expense, much more than it's at Gonzo's expense. Ah, yes, yes. But she's also, at least in this one scene, 
She is very in control of the situation. She has both of these men sort of in their place. She will not let them set the rules of engagement. You know, she is, Kermit, you are giving me an abject apology. I don't care if you don't think it's an abject apology. I say it is, and so therefore it is. Gonzo, you don't touch me. You don't breathe on me. I don't want you. And, and also with like just the perfect rhythm and delivery as she pivots between the two of them. Oh, I just think... I think she is in supreme control. And then with the double chop, which is not a move we've seen from her yet, it just is like the perfect cherry on top. I mean, it's the puppetry of Miss Piggy is obviously beautiful to watch. And earlier when Kermit was describing this romantic evening out and watching Piggy react to that, there there's this cute thing that Piggy does that I think we'll see more in later seasons, but to see it here, she like throws one arm out in front of her and throws her head back in ecstasy it's one of my favorite piggy things and we get to watch her do it here. Yeah. And it does look like, I mean, I can't tell for sure, but I like, I, th- uh, there might be two people on the arms, but it, it also might be all Frank Oz just with the two rods in one hand. Yeah. I couldn't figure it out chop. whether it was just Frank being perfect or yeah, I don't know, but like, <laughs> it's so good. And it's like, if it is, if it is two people, it's like perfectly timed. I don't know. I, I just, I, yeah, I just, I love that, that, the don't touch me, like all of that is so great. And I, I also really love the Dave Gold's performance. Like it is, it, he is playing a creep. Um, but like, like Gonzo gets less creepy because they, they drop this pretty quickly, if I remember correctly. But um, I like Gonzo in this mode better than I like him in sad sack mode. And I think it's so well performed by both of them. I, I don't like that it comes out of nowhere, right? We have not seen any of this all season. And suddenly this is a thing we're supposed to believe about Gonzo. I, I think anyone who's ever had a really ill-advised crush can relate to the ferocity and wrongness of uh, Gonzo's piggy fixation. And the, the spiky energy of Gonzo with piggy is really delightful, especially because Gonzo has been a non-presence for a lot of the back half of the season. So Yeah. More of that, please. Yeah. Um, I do think this is going to come back a little bit in season two before he moves on to, on to chickens. What's funny is that even though Gonzo still has some evolution to come, Piggy's relationship to and reaction to Gonzo in this scene remains their relationship for the rest of time. Like, I recently rewatched Muppets from Space, and her sort of, like, barely tolerating him is an annoyance that she allows to be around because he's Kermit's friend remains the core of the piggy gonzo relationship yes and gonzo being a little bit of a creeper and also uh super into violence against himself (laughs) um right the the creepiness changes into just weirdness in the way that it's not that we think that he's going to assault someone as much as it's just oh is he gonna make me look at his stamp collection for an hour like that kind of weird creepy annoying instead of oh i'm afraid he might touch me inappropriately yes <laughs> you, you seem less convinced <laughs> i mean yes you're right and i'm still uncomfortable i'm just processing. sure oh, no 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 absolutely be uncomfortable there is there is <laughs> no reason not to be that is the appropriate reaction <laughs> Yep. There's something too that I like about sort of the evolution of Kermit in this, though uh, again he is a dick. <laughs> but the the when this started to happen earlier in the season, 
and and like he made us really uncomfortable in a bunch of ways and i think what we're seeing now like he's sort of quietly exasperated where he's like hey this isn't happening please stop sexually harassing me at work and i don't think that his reaction to that is is correct here in how he involves gonzo in it but but there is something to the way that that he says you know like piggy i've told you this before I don't want, and you know, he shouldn't say I don't want you, but right, like I don't want to date you. I it, it, th- there's something in that, the way that that has evolved from when we first saw it that I think is, I am all of them could benefit from a consent workshop. Yeah, seriously. Um, yeah, um, because dudes, what do you think is like setting a woman up on a, a trick date with the person you know she doesn't want to date? Like, what do yeah. you expect is going to happen? Yeah, that is not. I expect them to surprisingly fall in love as soon as one of them removes their eyeglasses because I watch a lot of sitcoms. Ah, that. <laughs> I guess I hadn't watched as many. Wait a second, '90s comedies. They could stage a, a show, and then replace the um, actor who's playing the priest with a real priest. Oh Ooh, yeah, Maybe problem solved. Give him a few years. <laughs> yeah. Before we move off this, we would be remiss if we did not note that an important element of Gonzo's evolution does happen in this episode, which is that Gonzo has gained his signature sound effect, which is that sound when he sort of runs into a space. (laughs) On that note, we've got some woman shans in this episode. They do some things. Let's talk about the things they do. Our special guest, the Mormon Chants, is a group of performers who, well, they're kind of distant cousins to the Muppets. They use a unique mixture of pantomime and masks that's about as difficult to describe as to pronounce. All right. So they have a couple of full-length skits here and then a little series of three short skits. The first full-length one is this paper faces thing. So there are two of the Mormon Chants. They're wearing these kind of oversized masks that have little three little stacks of post-its on each mask for the eyes and the mouth. And they tear away from the top of the stack and it reveals new expressions or sometimes they draw on the paper. And it's all part of this larger interaction that the two characters are having, which it's it's interesting. It's cute when they like tear away the paper that has an eyelid and then one eye looks in one direction, tear away another one looks in the other direction. They find a lot of things to do with it. I don't have a problem with it. Just not Muppets. <laughs> I I mean, this is nothing to do with the Muppets. I just, every time they perform this, somebody has to redraw those stacks of paper. Yeah. And I was thinking about how you, you better not tear off two at once by accident. Yeah. I couldn't stop thinking story. about that. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, was like really distracted from like, because I just was so focused on like, they can't see what's on their face because, you know, it's not like the Muppet performers who perform while watching monitors. So if they accidentally do it wrong, the whole thing doesn't make sense. Although arguably there are parts that don't make sense, even if they do it right. And <laughs> they would never know. <laughs> I guess if, if you're filming it, you can have a few of those stacks of post-its ready to go and you can stop and start over again. But if you're doing it live and they, this was a skit that they did live, right? Yeah, I assume all of these were skits they do live. Just like the skill it takes to to do this stuff on your own face that you can't see. Yeah, and to draw. Like it's one thing to like draw a line across it, but then he like draws or or she, whoever's inside that suit, draws a little line of teeth 
across and does it well. I'm fairly confident that this paper faces was both of the men, which also made me wonder if this was flirtatious. And if so, is that, you know, adventurous for 1977? It definitely read as flirtatious. to me. Yeah. I I think we're supposed to understand that the one with the eyelashes is a lady. Hmm. And I think that we're supposed to also understand that it's flirtatious. There are advances that are rejected and then the other one makes advances and that kind of little thing. I mostly, once they started using the the arrows for their mouths, I, that's when I kind of lost the plot. I, I thought you were going to say that when they draw an arrow, but then extend it down, like they unfold a piece of paper. So it's a very long arrow pointing down. I kind of gasped. Like, is that appropriate? <gasps> oh. <laughs> These feel I, like I, very chaste performers. I don't know. I don't know. That's certainly not how I read it, but I can see how you got there. Thank you. Was it meant to indicate like that's what he's talking about? That's what he's packing. Is a long arrow. Oh, I didn't. I didn't. Or is that where he or wants like, to direct her attention? Well, yeah, right. The, the thing that he's saying is 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 follow down, the arrow is down related. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Because then, because then the reaction of the other one is is shocked and 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 they they tear the arrow away. Right? They're like, stop! Don't say that. Right? Did they do this on Sesame to teach follow the arrow? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Ah. <sighs> There will be a GIF of the down arrow in the show notes. You all can watch it on repeat and decide what you think it means and let us know in the comments. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about these these three short skits uh, where Kermit kind of introduces each one in a way that feels a little bit sesame to me. It's very, very quick. He says they do some weird stuff like this and also like this and also like this. So the the three things that they do are this kind of, I wrote down this, weird tardigrade kind of thing, like a microscopic water bear thing. It's just a little thing with a bunch of legs. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, a microscopic water bear. Why, of course. (laughs) Oh, you know. Well, well, I've I've Googled it, and we'll put a picture in the show notes, because when you see it, you'll, like I just did, go, oh, that. I went to the Horda from Star Trek, so if you want a nerdier reference, there it is. <laughs> well, we don't have to fight about whose references. People the also ask, "Can you kill a tardigrade?" <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I assume so. It's alive, therefore. Oh, people also ask, "Are they immortal?" Our listeners will have to find out for themselves by doing more googling than we are currently doing. What's interesting too is that if you Google Muppet tardigrade, there is no Muppet tardigrade, but tardigrades are frequently described as Muppet-like. It does look so cuddly, right? I mean. <laughs> It in looks more cuddly way. than that Mum and Sean's tardigrade situation. So we have the faceless tardigrade, and now we have the fly on point, which I can't even describe. There's just going to be a gif. It's very the fly. Yep. Very like conniving little. I, I don't trust it. Uh, and then there's this Venus flytrap kind of dealio that eats another little dealio. And those I are the three kids. A- as a clam with a tongue. Oh, I mean, I, I read it as an Audrey, but yeah, no, for me, definitely a clam. That one I liked the most because I wanted to figure out how it managed to pick something up with the tongue, and I'm not mm-hmm. sure if the tongue is the puppeteer's hands or the tongue is the puppeteer's feet, or if it's just sticky. Yeah, I was gonna say it could be Velcro. Shut up! I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a hand underneath the tongue, but it could also be. (laughs) Anyway, I did not care for these segments because they felt too short to make an impact. Like it felt like 
commercials for their show more than an actual segment of a variety show. Yeah, there's yeah. there would have been or should have been a happy medium that the Momenchan bits could have reached and didn't because the, that paper faces thing went on for for a bit. I didn't time it. It was a minute or so too long. And the, these three short skits are indeed very short skits. They're not really skits. They're just a little demonstration. Yeah, hey, look at a thing. Mm-hmm. Look at a costume. Yeah. Uh, Waldorf agrees with you. They remind me of puppets. Mm. Puppets. I've always hated puppets. <laughs> ah, you're a traitor to your class. What class? I never even graduated. So do we think that this joke was originally you're a traitor to your race and then someone thought better of it? Yep. <laughs> I presume. I don't know. I find it weird when they acknowledge that they're puppets. I mean, Kermit says they're distant cousins. Yeah, that's true. And he's saying it to an audience full of Muppets. We're overthinking this. <laughs> yes, nobody needs to send us any of those cartoons of Kermit suddenly realizing that he has a hand up his butt. He already knows. So let's talk about the other Mumenshans sketch, this clay faces bit. So again, we have two of the Mumenshans who are uh, facing off with each other, eh, maybe literally. They have these clay masks and they're adding features. So they have little piles of clay in front of them. They're each adding features and it turns into this kind of a uh, battle of the busts, if you will. Eh. Um, okay. It ends in a physical altercation where they end up with their faces stuck together, which is actually really cool and interesting and expressive. And it's the whole thing is driven by these two people are characters and they have personalities and the story that they tell is fueled by their characters. One of them can't seem to sculpt very well and keeps uh, flailing in disappointment while the other one keeps sculpting these beautiful features onto itself. Um, It's actually really interesting. I was like waiting for the clip and then I remembered it's silent. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is a good place to say that the music here is by Derek Scott. Apparently, uh, according to the DVDs, they normally performed in silence, which uh, much as I don't really care for Derek Scott's music, frankly, sounds interminable. <laughs> but I mean, I said this already about the 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 paper thing, but like just the skill of this, like whether you like it or not, and and it is a little bit creepy. <laughs> um, you know, for kids, look at these terrifying faces being smushed and pulled apart. But like just the the skill of of being able to to sculpt that thing on your own face and you can't see it. Like it's pretty remarkable. And I, I, I noticed that even the, like they both have um, like extra clay in front of them to add to their faces. And, and even those are in character, like the, the, the elegant guys, little clay pile is like perfect. And the other ones is a, is a total mess just preset on the block. I, I love all of those details. It, it's very cool. This reminded me of that scene in Brazil when Catherine Hellman's facelift melts off. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's also very that. <laughs> we'll have a gif of that in the show notes. <laughs> we will not. <laughs> you can Google it. But like even the even the the dog, which like should be cute, he makes it sort of unsettling. One turns the other into a dog, and then one turns itself into a bird, so that they can like chase each other around and have a fight. And this is all, yeah, without being able to see. We don't need to debate for this time for for this one whether they can see at all they definitely can't they're wearing yes. these masks i mean they can see they can see each other but they can't see their own faces for sure right i mean there are i'm not holes. even sure they can see each other can they? there there are eye holes but they're getting obscured the more they right, fight right. and mush clay onto each other's faces and the one who sculpts the dog onto the face of the other is doing it from 
below, like has just gotten knocked down and reaches up and somehow makes the other one's face into a dog very deftly. It's very impressive. Okay, but let's talk about some Muppets. Muppets, what's that? Muppets, oh, right. That was the show we came here to see. Okay, let's go to At the Dance and uh, let's bid farewell to George and Mildred by listening to them bring out the absolute worst in each other. There is such riffraff here. Wouldn't you rather be associated with a better class of people? Yeah, but you were the only one not dancing. (laughs) Okay, I just got it. I was going to ask you to explain that joke to me, and I just got it. (laughs) That's why we watch the episode multiple times before Uh we talk about it. Yeah, sometimes it takes a while to filter through our dense heads. Yep, that she wasn't. She was the only one available to for him to ask to dance. Yep. And she's not a better class of people. Okay, got it now. Alas. <sighs> I'm going to miss yeah. them. Yeah. If if we had to give them a send-off, I guess it's okay that this was it. I don't know. Rolf is in this week's At the Dance, and I enjoyed him. Hey, you are one cute tomato, my little dumpling, my little cupcake, my little lamb chop. Oh, that makes me feel so, so... Amorous, let's kiss. No, hungry, let's eat. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I just, I just liked it. I, amorous is such a, such a weird word choice. Which I've definitely been on that date. <laughs> <laughs> which, which side were you on? I'm uh, definitely the hungry side. <laughs> yeah, well, who among us? And we've also got a couple of whatnots, and I don't remember ever seeing these heads before. But uh, whatnots get to blow their tops too. <laughs> the the lady whatnot is wearing a phenomenal. Caftan, I guess we can't. We can't see her from the waist down, but it's great. It <laughs> is it's beautiful, and it's very detailed. Yeah, yeah. Did somebody just sit up all night and sew that for this joke? I guess, guess so. Yeah, I guess we didn't clip it, but it's just them saying they don't like the jokes that they have to say on this show, and then they blow their tops. And you know that is a running gag of Muppets commenting on the quality of their writing. <laughs> It feels a little cruel in this episode because this is the last episode by head writer Jack Burns before he departs. I mean, he might have written this joke. Possible. Maybe every every joke demeaning the writing has been written by him. It's possible. So in the talk spot, uh, we've got the moment shots again, and they are actually talking to Kermit in their way. They're not talking out loud, but they're doing all of the little shtick that goes with the heads that they're wearing. It is very cute. Kermit is asking, you know, you could say anything, even if it's silly. And one of them blows bubbles out its mask. And he asks, well, does anybody have anything important to say? And then one produces a ping pong ball from out of its mouth and places it into the top of the head of the other one. And it causes these uh, party blowers to inflate out of the other one's head, which is is fun. I got a kick out of it. Yeah, it's cute. Yeah. They remind me of those little dolls that like you squeeze and it makes the tongue and the eyes bulge out. Yeah. It feels a little more clever and less disgusting than that. Uh, honestly, this was my favorite Momenshan's shtick in the whole show, probably because it's interacting with Kermit, and it felt a little more of a piece with the Muppet Show. Yeah. But I think it also speaks to why they couldn't do more things with Muppets, because other than this very particular shtick of like, why won't you talk to me? Like, what else can you do? I wanted to talk about the Statler and Warlord bit that followed the talk spot, which is Please not do. actually connected to the talk spot, but I wasn't sure where else to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So after the talk spot, we get this bit 
So they see this and they like it and they yell, bravo, bravo. And then one of them tells a story about the last time that he said bravo, which is apparently a very rare occurrence in his theater going career, which makes sense given what we know about them, was when he saw this performer who performed with birds, but something went wrong and she got covered in bird seed and she got pecked to death. And this is mostly notable because this is the second time this season someone gets pecked to death by birds off stage. And what the fuck, Muppets? And because they were covered in birdseed. The previous time it was at the hands of Valerie Harper, who taped the birdseed to Bertha, Bertha Beasley's body. And now it's just Statler fondly recalling how he witnessed this murder. Gruesome. Yeah. Moving right along. <laughs> Uh, Statler is apparently part of the troupe now. He's just on stage and he walks past Vendaface, which offers to rearrange his looks. Uh, Statler agrees and the results are predictable. Uh, Statler gets his face punched in. The end. This is the second time in this episode that Statler's looks get rearranged. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, I guess we, we might as well, here as anywhere, give the award for Muppet Body Horror Moment of the Week. Because um, Waldorf has a thing where he sneezes and that kind of deflates his face and he needs Statler to breathe into his ear to reinflate his face. It's very intimate. Oh, right. Sorry. So each of them gets their faces rearranged at different points. Yes. Well, Statler gets his face punched in by Waldorf at some point and he also gets his face punched in by Vendaface. Waldorf, however, that, that is a lot more intimate when you need somebody to blow in your ear. It was so horny. It was so uncomfortable. <laughs> and Statler just kind of grudgingly acquiesced. Wait, Walter. so 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 Scooter being horny for Floyd is fine, but Statler and Waldorf, long longtime companions, makes you uncomfortable? Scooter wanting to be Floyd and maybe not figuring out yet that he wants to be with Floyd. Is that where we're at with this? I'm just I'm just challenging David's discomfort. It, it's just the, the Scooter Floyd thing was all about the yearning and the hunger, whereas this was just like like physical intimacy broadcast in a way that I don't think was intended to be. I think this was a, a private moment between lovers, and it did not belong on my very large television screen. It felt like we were, uh, I don't know, invading their sanctity. Hmm. Yeah, I guess... Um... Waldorf asking to have his face reinflated and Statler kind of shrugging and saying, Oh, all right. Again, I'll do this again for you. It kind of has, I don't know what, what's a a similar request. Like, could you, (laughs) what is a similar request? No, you know, forget I asked. I was trying to think of like, what's something annoying that you have to do for your person. That's like, if you told anybody you'd have to, you would, Feels strange about it, but like zipping up the back of a dress or something. Like, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I thought it was very sweet. All I'm saying, it was very sweet. It was very intimate. We also had him up a newsflash about the world's oldest living human. It wasn't funny. It was really kind of sad and mean. Yeah, it was about the world's oldest living human. He's 196 years old. They reported how many children and grandchildren and great-great-great-grandchildren he has, and none of them visit him. Because he smells bad. Which, I mean, yeah, but rude. Uh, Yeah, I hated it. I hated everything about it. It was very sad. It'll be much more fun when we can watch terrible things happen to the newsman next season. And the funny thing about this, too, is that it's one of the few 
Mumpet News Flash segments of this season where the guest stars don't appear. And yet, I was so excited when the newsman came on screen because I was like, oh, I bet it'll be really funny to get him trying to interact with Mum and Shans. Like, that's mm. the thing I want to see. And they didn't do it. Yeah, trying to interview them and failing. Right. Yeah. Missed opportunity. Alas. Well, that's all I got. <laughs> Are we going to talk about the closing when we see them without their masks on? Because that's some fucking body horror, too. I just look, the, <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> go that far. But the guy all the way stage left looks so stoned <laughs> like he is he is not looking at the camera he <laughs> is a beat behind they all they all say thank you kermit or something in unison except he is not in unison well remember they didn't all speak english okay sure but it's like three words and presumably the three of them two of them are looking at the at a cue card <laughs> or someone like conducting them to get them to say it. Right. And yeah. the what the one guy, I mean, his eyes are literally glassy <laughs> and he is just like somewhere else. And it does yeah. undermine the joke. Amazing. Where Kermit then says, Oh, you really do work as a team. Well, yeah. yeah. But he can't even manage to say three words in unison. Super weird. I mean, you yeah. can't, you can't be stoned for the type of performance that moment chance does either, No, but you, you can for that. So he clearly right. waited and <laughs> Yeah. Or I mean, or who knows? Or he got bonked on the head during the clay bit. I mean Or he's just exhausted from being inside those costumes. Yeah. And yes, doing very I, physical uh, performances. Sure. I, but he but probably he got stoned. <laughs> I'm not casting aspersions. Also, whatever. The show's over. Live your life. But I'm he is And it's the seventies and we know that, that was the thing that a lot of the performers like to do. Yes. He is not mentally in the same place as the other two in that moment. It is very obvious, that's all I'm saying. No judgment. <laughs> That was a funny show. Yes, it was. I wonder if they meant it that way. All right. So more business than usual. We are going to take a little break because clearly we need one. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) on purpose this time, we're going to take a few weeks off. And we are planning to come back at the very beginning of October with season two of The Muppet Show. Don Knotts! Don Knotts. <laughs> that let me. That is a mixed bag of an episode. That spoilers te- teaser. I can't wait. That that episode contains one of my favorite things ever on the Muppet Show, and one of the most horrifying things ever on the Muppet Show. Oh can't man! Wait to talk come, about it. Come back and in October, and until then, place your bets as to which is Adam's favorite and least favorite thing. I mean, I imagine it'll be pretty clear if you've been listening to us all season, but we'll see. Um, So anyway, we'll be back in October. We might have a bonus episode or two in the meantime. We're not entirely sure. So the best way to know the instant we're back is to subscribe to us in the podcast app of your choice. We should be findable on pretty much all of them. Or you can go to muppeturgy.com slash subscribe, and there is an RSS link there. You can add us manually. You can use Feedly or whatever. I miss Google Reader. You thought that Star Trek reference would be the nerdiest thing I said today. (laughs) Um, If none of that made any sense to you, email us uh, or find us on social media, and we can help you. I know there's a couple podcast apps that don't like grab the same feeds as everybody else, and we're happy to add ourselves to them. So... We take podcast at muppeturgy.com. If you need anything, just send us an email. Yes. If you uh, want to try to convince a... us to review Sandy Duncan in Disneyland yeah. while we're away. There's a form on our website. We are Muppeturgy at Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. So all the things. While you're subscribing on the podcast app of your choice, please rate and review us. It really does help other people find us, and we appreciate it very, very much. 
Well, it's been a season. Thanks for listening to us here at Muppeturgy. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word and offer a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levin. Yay. Yay. Um, while you're subscribing in the podcast app of your choice, um, please rate and review us. It really does help other people find us, and we almost never ask. So uh, we're asking now. Once or twice a season, we're going to ask you to do that. Um, it really does help. I, I ask at the end of every fucking episode. <laughs> you yeah, I feel like. You. Oh, yeah, you do. <laughs> it's right there, right on the screen right. that you're looking at. Yeah, we, we <laughs> can lose the, uh, the NPR bit. Never mind.